This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, and may be found on page 1077 in the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Matt Ryman. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at University Presbyterian Church. And um, I don't know if you've ever heard this old saying, but I discovered it recently. Never discuss religion or politics in polite company. Ever heard that before? Well, uh, I'm going to have to go against that because we are continuing our What the Bible Really Says About dot, dot, dot series. And uh, some of those dot, dot, dots have included the afterlife, which Mike preached on a couple weeks ago. And then he last week he preached about what the Bible really says about sex. Next week, you'll want to be sure to be here, he's going to preach about what the Bible really says about Christians. And this morning, we're going to be talking about what the Bible really says about politics. Now, uh, I am fully aware that politics is a very hot topic and a very touchy subject here in the United States, where we live in a very politicized uh, country, very polarized country also. There's a lot of opinions. Some people don't care at all about politics, and some people have really strong opinions. Some people have a positive view. Some people have a negative view of politics. One politician with a positive view said this, politics isn't about big money or power. It's about the improvement of people's lives. Another person sees it a little differently, and he defines politics in this way. Politics, noun. Poly, meaning many. Ticks, meaning blood-sucking parasites. (laughs) So uh, there's a little variety uh, in our views on politics, so... Um, so what does the Bible really say about politics? And that's an important, it's an important question for us to answer. It's an important question for us to think about as people of the book, as people who live our lives according to what God says in his word. So we're going to take a look at what the Bible really says about politics. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I just pray that you would shine. I thank you so much for the grace that you have continued to pour out on our church, help us to accept that and to run with it 
to the nations and to glorify you in all that we do. Be with us now, speak through me, and pray that you'd be glorified, we'd be edified, and the nations would be glad in Jesus' name. Amen. So our scripture passage today from the first chapter of the book of Acts, it may not seem like it's entirely relevant because it doesn't really talk about how we should do politics. But I didn't choose it because of that. I chose it because it tells us how we should view politics. Let me give you some background. Um, This first chapter in Acts, basically what has happened is Jesus has risen from the dead. And as you see in verse 3, he has just spent 40 days teaching his apostles about the kingdom of God. That's a lot of teaching about the kingdom of God. And they were surely excited about it. So they asked this question in verse 6. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's a political question. Flat out. It's a very political question. You see, the Jews in Jerusalem were at this time, they were under the control of the Roman government. Rome had taken over and required them to abide by certain laws. And they didn't like that because they wanted to only abide by God's laws. And they wanted, they didn't want to pay taxes to the Romans. They only wanted to give their tithe. So they didn't like the fact that Rome had control over them. And in fact, some of their messianic expectations, some of the things that they kind of assumed the Messiah would do when he came would be liberate them from these pesky Romans. And so they ask this question, a very political question. But Jesus doesn't give them a very political answer. Look again at verse 7 and 8. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, he's telling them that they're not going to receive political power, but they're going to receive power to complete the mission that he had given them. I'm sure you remember in Matthew 28, 18, and 19, we have the Great Commission. And that's what he's alluding to here. He's talking about the fact that he told his apostles to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that he had commanded them, and that he would be with them to the end of the age. He had made that commission. He had given the church its mission. And here, he's actually giving them the strategy That's what Acts 1 verse 8 is. He's saying that you start here in Jerusalem and then you expand out into Judea and Samaria, the surrounding areas, and then you keep on going until you've hit the ends of the earth. He was showing them that Jerusalem should should have been viewed as the gospel epicenter, the place where this good news would come from and spread all over the world. So he gets this political question. But he gives a missional answer. That's because the proclamation of the gospel in word and deed to all nations is the number one priority of the church. Therefore, our political views and actions must be aligned with the completion of this mission. Let's talk about that. Dictionary.com defines the word politics in this way, the science or art of political government. So uh, politics, a person's political views are referring to how they feel human government should be run. But 
The Bible doesn't teach the world how to govern countries. It teaches Christians how to govern the church. Let me show you this. There's two institutions uh, that God has ordained, divinely instituted in the world for his glory. And that would be the family and the church. Now, some have suggested in the past and even now that the state is also a divine institution. Um, After I looked at all the uh, evidence, I really have to side with one of my professors, John Frame. He says the Bible does not explicitly or implicitly define the state. nor does it record any divine authorization of it. So let's talk about the state, then we'll talk about the family, then we'll talk about the church. Okay, the state. The Bible acknowledges for sure that there are different governments in the world. It's not, it doesn't ignore that. It talks about kings, talks about different governments. But what the Bible doesn't do is give us some certain type of government that is best, some sort of human government that is best. Instead, the Bible definitely calls Christians to submit uh, to whatever government they live under. We see that in Romans 13. Unless, of course, they're called to disobey God, which we don't do that then, which we see in Acts chapter 5. Romans 13 also tells us that um, the government authorities, God does use them to bear the sword. He does use the governments of the world to punish evildoers. And so, but still, that doesn't mean that the state is necessarily a divine institution. And think about Psalm 2. From Psalm 2, we can say that from God's perspective, perspective in some ways all of the human governments of the world are somewhat against christ think about psalm 2 it says this why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth take their stand the rulers gather together against the lord and against his anointed one not only that think about psalm 146 verse 3 which says do not put your trust in princes in mortal men who cannot save Jeremiah 17.5 says, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. And that's because, as Jeremiah says a little bit later in chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? It's Jeremiah 17 verse 9. So here's the deal. Because of sin, there has never been and there will never be a human government that results in peace and harmony for everyone in society. It can't happen. Because we're sinners. And God is sovereign. And God does use different political leaders to carry out justice and to do certain things. But God in his word is far more concerned. Far more concerned with teaching us how to govern the family and the holy nation which he is the king of which is the church. So let's talk about The family and the church. First, the family. God's plan to glorify himself in this world was to, from the beginning, was to fill the earth with images of himself, human beings. And so the method he chose to fill the earth with images of himself was creating the institution of the family. You see this in Genesis 1.28. The Bible says that God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. This is the institution of the family which is designed to fill the earth with God worshipers. Now, we know that there's an authority structure in the family as well. Okay, from many places in Scripture, but especially Ephesians 5, we see that the husband is the head of his household. And we see from the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, we see that the mother and father together are in authority over their children. So that's the plan. That was the plan, that husbands and wives would have children, raise them to know and love and serve God, and then send them off 
to start more families and raise up more children and so on and so forth. We could call that plan A. Of course, we know that in the garden, sin entered the world through Adam. And ever since then, everybody in their families has struggled to fulfill their role. Men fail to lead. Women fail to respect their husbands. Children are disobedient. But the plan never changed. God never took his eyes off the family. In fact, it's very visible that he uses the family all the way through the Old Testament and New Testament. Think about Noah. Noah was told by God, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy life, all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives, his family. In fact, the author of Hebrews says that Noah built the ark to save his family. And God told Abraham that his family would become a great nation. And that through his family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that continues all through Genesis, all through the Old Testament, the importance of the family. Now, uh, think about the New Testament. Think about Peter's sermon at Pentecost. He stands up and he's preaching and he says the promise is for you and your children. He's talking about families. This is why the apostles didn't simply evangelize, didn't simply share the gospel with single people, or not, not necessarily single people, but individuals. They went after families as well. Think about Acts 16. There's two examples. You've got the story of Lydia. Lydia was a woman from a place called Thyatira, and they, they brought the gospel to her. They shared the gospel to her. She believed, so they went back and baptized her and her whole household, it says in Acts chapter 16. Think about the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas were in jail. There was an earthquake. The jailer thought they escaped. He was about to kill himself. And Paul says, hold on, we're still here. He's so shocked and amazed that he asks them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul replies, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds and immediately he and his family were baptized. So the Bible has a lot to say about the importance of families and the government of families because the family is one of God's institutions through which he is glorifying himself in the world. Let's talk about the church. Okay, we tend to think of the church as a New Testament institution, but actually the church is an institution that God began long before the New Testament was written. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is one of our governing documents as Presbyterians, says that it refers to the nation of Israel as a church underage. In fact, the word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which also means, actually means, assembly. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that in many places when the nation of Israel, I should say when the families of Israel gathered together, it was called the assembly. You can see that in Deuteronomy 9, Deuteronomy 31, Judges 20, 1 Kings 8, Psalm 22, and so on and so forth. It was called the assembly. And think about Acts 7, verse 38. If you still have your Bibles open to Acts, you can flip to 7, verse 38. This is very interesting. Stephen, who was a deacon, was uh, preaching to these people who are about to stone him. And he says in verse 38, Moses was in the assembly in the desert 
with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And he received living words to pass on. So right there, he uses that word assembly, which in Greek is ekklesia, which we also translate as church. Not only that, think about our, our verse of the year, 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You may not have realized this, but Peter is actually quoting a number of Old Testament passages and using names that were designed for the nation of Israel and using them to refer to the church. See, the church in the Old Testament and the New is the assembly of all the families that worship God. And the nation of Israel was less, it was less of a political nation and more of a giant family, like a giant household. Um, God was the head of this household. That's the way scripture portrays the nation of Israel. And it's so important that we realize that the commands in the Old Testament were meant not for everyone in the world, but for the people that God had called and chosen for himself. Think about Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. God says to them, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Basically, God, as head of his household, is saying that now you are my children, and if you're going to live under my roof, you're going to live by my rules. It's basically where he's going with that. He's not talking about the neighbor's kids. He's talking about how he wants his church, his assembly of families to live in this world. And eventually in 1 Samuel 8, we see that these families, because of their sin, eventually reject God as head of his household. They reject God as king of the nation of Israel. And they ask for a human king like the nations have, which leads Israel into a series of having a number of human kings which continue to fail to do everything right. And there's lots of problems, which in itself is a commentary on the ability of humans to actually govern successfully. So, the New Testament then teaches Christians how Jesus' sacrifice fulfilled some of the laws that the Old Testament church was required to do like animal sacrifices and some things like that. And it teaches how we are to govern the church in a world where the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has come to earth, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, so that whoever believed in him would have eternal life. The Bible teaches the New Testament people, people in our time, how to govern the church in a world where Jesus is king, where he has come, he has ascended on high as our king. And this is why it's so important for us to realize that the Bible doesn't teach us how to govern countries teaches us how to govern the church and the mission of the church is not to have our morality necessarily forced onto people the mission of the church is to preach the gospel to get this message of salvation through christ to all the nations and live in such a way that people take notice and want to be a part of what we're doing god wants us to see us acting under the government of the church. So people will copy us. You know, I worked for Best Buy before. I've, I don't know if I've ever preached a sermon without mentioning Best Buy, and perhaps that's awkward. But um, here's the thing. Dick Schultz uh, started Best Buy when after his uh, a store he had, a, a music store 
got hit by a tornado, and he decided, I'm going to take the rest of my merchandise, my record players and all this stuff, and uh, I'm just going to rent a warehouse, and I'll just put the boxes right up on the shelves, and people can just come in and take the box, and I'll ring them up on the way out. And so he does this, and the first weekend he has his tornado sale. It's like amazing, and everybody comes in there and buys all this stuff, and it's a huge success. So instead of being done, which was his plan, he's like, eh, perhaps I'll order some more merchandise, which he does. So he has another tornado sale, which goes fantastic. And so he realized that this is how I'm going to run stores. I'm going to, this is my vision. I'm going to have stores all over the country and you're just going to, there's going to be the box right there. You just take the box and you bring it up right to the register. Sound familiar? That was his vision for Best Buy. But the other stores like Circuit City and Walmart and Sears and and Lowe's and Home Depot and you name it, they all do that now. We all walk into these stores and we see all these things in their boxes ready for us to just take. That was Dick Schultz's idea. And all the stores saw how wise and how productive that was. So they started to copy him. If God wanted Christians to make a world, make the world a better place through politics, he would have made that real clear. And if he wanted us to strive for a certain form of government, he would have made that real clear too. Instead, God has given us power, the power we need to build strong, God-worshipping families and strong, God-worshipping churches all over the world through which the kingdom of God is coming. He has called us to live according to His ways, to submit to His government for His people so that the nations will see, so that the nations will see how we live and be drawn to us and drawn to Him. That's why the Bible is so focused on the government of God's church. And this is why it's so important for us to focus on our mission The more we focus on our mission of bringing the gospel to every nation in word and deed, the more also, and the more we are transformed by Christ, the more the world will be affected in a positive way. As a byproduct of our work of bringing the gospel to every tribe and tongue and people and nation everywhere. So the Bible isn't focused on how the on how we should run governments. The Bible is focused on how the church is to accomplish its task. Therefore, our political involvement must be in accord with the mission of the church. Think about that. Our political involvement, everything in our lives, should be according to the mission of the church. So our political involvement should be in accord with the mission of the church. Now, we should definitely take advantage of the way the political government here works in America with our ability to vote and stuff like that. We should take advantage of any opportunities that we have and think about how can this help us complete our mission. And in that sense, we should make sure that we're, as far as our involvement level goes in politics, we shouldn't be involved too little and we shouldn't be involved too much. Let's talk about too little. One of the things we talked about at the 30-hour famine this past weekend was that God calls his people, us, the church, to meet the felt needs of people in our community and around the world. Hunger, homelessness, sickness, disease. We are the ones who are called to meet those needs. The church is the one who's called, not the government. We are, as God's people. Those are the ones he has sanctified for that work. But he's also called Christians to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, For the rights of all who are destitute, this is from Proverbs 31, speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. 
And we have, in America, every one of us, 18 and over, has a vote. And so we have ability to influence the government through our votes. And so we should vote to ensure that people who cannot speak for themselves are spoken for. We should vote and elect leaders who will defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Romans 13 says God uses governments to punish evildoers. So we should vote for leaders that will carry out justice. And then, it's a big one. Paul in 1 Timothy 2 tells us that we should pray for the governments and authorities of this world so that we may live peaceful lives in all godliness and holiness. It's from 1 Timothy 2. And I would say that means that we should definitely vote in ways that will help us lead lead lives where we're peaceful and we can be godly and we can be holy. But the most important part of that passage in 1 Timothy 2 is that we need to be praying. We need to be praying for our government. Our city, our state, our federal, the world. We need to be praying for the governments of the world. So at the very least, some Christians believe they should have zero zero involvement in politics. But I'm saying at the very least, we should pray. And the Bible definitely uh, says it's, it's cool for some people who feel called to uh, go into office. God has put his people in office before. He put Joseph in a high-level government position in Genesis 41. He put Daniel in a high-level government position in Daniel chapter 2. So if you feel like you will be able to advance God's kingdom, work towards preaching the gospel to all nations through politics, do it. Go for it. I'll vote for you. Just never forget that as a Christian, your primary obligation is advancing God's kingdom through the local church first and through politics as a distant second. So vote and run for office if you feel called. And at the very least, we should be praying. That's too little. You've got to be doing at least those things, I think, or you're doing too little. Now, too much. How do you know if you're doing too much? Two things for sure. Number one, if you no longer see people as sinners, but you've begun to see them as enemies, you are in too deep. John MacArthur says this, and I agree with him 100%. We must not be so engulfed in trying to force social behavior to conform to our standards that we become enemies of those our Lord has called us to win to himself. We must reject sin and never compromise God's standards of righteousness, but we must also never engage in defamation and denigration of lost sinners who make up our corrupt culture. When Christians become political, sinners become the enemy instead of the mission field. Amen. Number two, if you've begun to see politics as the best way to positively impact the world instead of through the local church, I would say you're, you're too involved. You may, have a, you may even have a righteous motive, but is your methodology right? Some Christians really want to uh, bring uh, moral reform to our country through politics. Some Christians really want to focus on bringing about social justice in our country through politics. And what I want to tell you is God wants to see both moral reform and social justice in our country and every country, but he doesn't care if people are forced to live according to some code by law. God looks at their hearts. He looks at our hearts. He doesn't want us to try to force people through politics to live in ways that he has called us to live. He wants us to proclaim the good news and win people to Christ so that their hearts are changed. Not just their behavior, 
He wants them to have the Holy Spirit so they can truly want to live according to God's ways because they're so grateful that he has welcomed them into his family as his children. So if Christians in the United States really want to have a positive impact on our country and the world, the answer is that more and more of us need to be more invested in the work of the local church. If you really want to bring about moral reform, the only way it's really ever going to happen, truly happen, is if it starts in the church and spills out into the society. That's what the church is designed to do. Same with social justice. If you really feel passionate about social justice, you should be participating in bringing that from the church out into the community. In fact, if you're really, really passionate about moral reform and you want to lead people in it, or you're really, really passionate about social justice and you want to lead people in that, we got jobs for you. It's called elders and deacons. primary role of an elder is the ministry of the word and prayer. He is to lead God's people in knowing God and knowing what God requires and equipping them to obey. The primary obligation of a deacon is to make sure that the community is served, especially the poor. To lead us into the community, to meet the felt needs of people all around us. That we are not only proclaiming the gospel in word, but in deed. That's why God is so adamant that we understand the government of the church. The more we know the Bible, the more we're going to understand this. Hannah and I have seen the show The Mentalist a couple times. I've only seen it two or three times. Anybody, any mentalistas out there? I don't know what you'd call yourself. Um, well, anyway, there's this, it's a show The Mentalist and this guy, Patrick Jane, I think that's his name, sorry if it's not, but um, that's his character. And what he does is he's kind of smart and he helps this police officer figure out crimes or something like that. Again, I've only seen it twice. Um, but in this particular episode, it was interesting because he, he actually screwed up a case really bad um, and, and a murderer got to go free. You see, this lawyer knew the way that Patrick Jane worked and he knew, he just knew, he knew him so well, he knew that he was going to go and illegally enter this man's apartment and search. And Patrick Jane did just that because that's what he does. And so eventually when the police went into the apartment to get the evidence they needed to put this man away for murder, it was inadmissible because Patrick Jane's fingerprints were on a coffee cup. Um, But this lawyer, he knew Patrick Jane so well, he knew how to set him up. He knew exactly what he would do. And what I'm telling you is that if we want to know what to do with our votes and with our political action. We've got to know God. We've got to know Him so well that we know what He's calling us to in all of these situations. The only way that we can ensure that our political involvement is glorifying to God is if we know the Bible because through the Bible we get to know God and through knowing God we will be better able to do things with our political influence that will serve Him and His kingdom. A good friend of mine always says, God loves to manifest his presence and pour out his power on those who will dare to align their purposes more with his. More than a better Orlando, more than a better state of Florida, more than a better United States of America, what Christians should want, what the church should want more than anything is for our king to return, for Jesus to come back. And because when he returns, he's going to put an end to all evil. He's going to make everything right. He's going to perfect every person who's ever had their faith in him. 
And he's going to set up a kingdom in which everybody lives in perfect harmony with him and with each other. And no human government will ever be able to do that. Ever. When the apostles asked Jesus about the restoration of the kingdom, which was a political question, he gives them this missional answer because as it says in Matthew 24, when the gospel has been preached to all nations, the king will come. The end will come. Our king will return in glory. What a day. What a day that's going to be. So let's focus on the mission God has given us. Let's see politics as one of the opportunities we have to help further our cause of proclaiming the gospel to all nations. But let's do that. Let's proclaim this gospel that in Christ it's the only place that you can find freedom from the penalty of sin. And through the Holy Spirit we find freedom from the power of sin. And eventually what we're talking about here is eventually we'll be freedom from the very presence of sin. So let's Take the gospel to all the nations and let's focus on that with all our hearts. And then one day when it's done, we can stop and we can look up in the sky just like the apostles in the book of the first chapter of the book of Acts were looking, watching him go. We will see him come. What a day that will be. So let's focus on our mission And get it done. Amen.